Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Uh, here we are, Invisible London. Uh, this could be some sort of uh, record as we are here for the second podcast in two days, three days, something like that. Uh, obviously, I am uh, on lockdown here in uh, in the UK, um, and so I've had plenty of time to... Uh, indulge my researching habits and uh, bring you another episode. Um, first of all, may I say how nice it is for you all to have joined me once again. I hope you're all right. I hope you're keeping safe and well. And uh, while obviously, um, I think obviously uh, these po- uh, podcasts, you know, you can't listen to them as you stroll around in uh, the places I'm uh, talking about, but I hope that um, they are still interesting. Uh, and uh, obviously you can save them up and uh, listen to them when you ever do end up um, in the middle of London uh, once again. And of course, uh, actually, I had a, a very kind follower on Instagram who said that um, uh, she's in Canada. Hello, Canada. Uh, but she listens um, and has a look on Google Earth at the uh, the sites and things I talk about, which is uh, absolutely what I do myself here. Actually, today I have been um, going around Soho Square, uh, which is what I'm going to be talking to you about. Um, and you can do the whole thing on uh, on um, Google Maps, uh, and you can see all the sites and the um, statues and the buildings and the people that uh, I'll be talking about there. So if you can't actually physically be there, uh, then at least you can, of course, uh, have a look digitally. Uh, what a wonderful modern world we live in. Um, I am sat here. I've got two laptops, so I feel just like Tony Stark. Um, and I was just having a look to see, just of my own curiosity, where people have been listening. And so we've got, there's one person in Thailand. Um, there's three people who listen from a country that they don't even name. It's just as others. So I, th- I guess that's space. Um, uh, there's people in Norway, the Netherlands, Lithuania. Um, there's, there's one Greek person having a listen. Hello, Greece. Um, Serbia, Switzerland, Swaziland. Uh, yeah, three people in Iraq, um, which is more popular than people in Ireland. So thank you, Iraq. Um, I hope you're having a good time. I've got four Swedes, uh, six people in India. Ten in New Zealand. I don't think I had anyone in New Zealand. That's exciting. Um, there we are. Twenty Canadians, thirty-three Australians, no one in France, uh, and uh, about three hundred people in America. So there we are. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> um, right. Uh, also, before I go any further, I have to uh, introduce the two newest and uh, again potentially youngest listeners to the podcast who are my two little fuzzy wuzzy babies uh wallace and edward who are our kittens that we bought i think it must have been before um uh the episode came out about the cenotaph or maybe just after um and so they are still little kittens they're nearly one so their birthday soon um and you can see them on the instagram feed um and they are they're locked out at the minute from the room, not of the house. That's fine. They can get in, um, but just of the room. But you might hear them meowing and scratching on the door uh, later on. But um, if that happens, I'll go and let them in. Um, but other than that, I had to say um, a big hello to them because 
they did listen to this uh, the last podcast and they didn't get a shout out and they didn't talk to me for the rest of the night so um, I've got to get this in uh, right are we sitting comfortably then I'll begin uh, today we are going to be exploring Soho Square and I didn't really know anything about it uh, until maybe oh it's about three years ago now um, where I uh, I moved out of London, I don't live in London anymore, um, but I now have to commute in when I uh, am working and I uh, get the train from King's Cross and then it's about a 40 minute walk for me from King's Cross through to um, Piccadilly where I work and um, on my walk now I used to mix it up and try and take to a different route every day and on these walks I discovered a nice uh, wonderful little park, Soho Square. Uh, which is just off of Oxford Street, and I'd walk through, and I think, oh, this is weird. I want you know, you get your phone out and you do a little Google search and see if there's any interesting things, like have there been any ghosts and all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, I've just found a huge wealth of weird and wonderful stuff, all focused in on Soho Square. So again, I think we are going to be exploring one of these wonderful, weird little um, sort of thin zones uh, where the weirdness creeps in, and uh, the, you know the, the the weird and wonderful people who are attracted to these areas that just seem to um, gravitate towards the the weird uh, and the wonderful things that exist there. So I hope. Um, you'll uh, find the square as interesting uh, as I do. Sorry, I was, I'm kidding myself there. I'm getting excited. Um, right, uh, so here we are, Soho Square. Originally, uh, it was been called uh, King Square after King Charles II, who was on the throne at the time when the um, square was originally laid out. 1661, the land was leased for, I think, 50 years uh, for a residential area. It was done in the sort of the most modern uh, style they could uh, possibly uh, design with this sort of grassy square in the center uh, beautifully landscaped with a fountain uh, and then with uh, residential buildings on the four sides um, it was um, originally yes yeah, so it's going to be laid out and called um, King Square but within about ooh, 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 70 years um, the earliest maps have it labelled up as Soho Square and Soho was this incredibly fashionable place um, uh, where pe everyone sort of wanted to live there and um, again bizarrely Soho uh, the name itself apparently comes from a, uh, a hunting phrase uh, which um, no one's quite sure if you'd yell out Soho uh, when oh it's a daisy sorry about that let me turn that off um, if you'd yell out Soho to call your dogs back uh, when they were um, uh, collecting the, the the catch, or if you were um, yelling that out to alert the the, the dogs that uh, you'd um, uh, you'd spotted your your, your quarry. But um, this part of London, obviously, um, medieval period was uh, rich sort of hunting ground. So it was uh, known uh, as this place, and the hunting phrase sort of stuck to the area. And um, uh, even then, yeah, they uh, uh, King Square became Soho Square, and. Uh, it was um, this, you know, it was so fashionable that it drew all these wonderful people uh, to the area, and they, you know, each and every one of these buildings that, if you're standing in Soho Square now, um, you can see that you know most, the majority of these buildings actually are, are now listed. Um, most of them are 
offices I think now there's lots of film companies and production companies and there's sort of office space where you can rent out places when there's blue plaques on the walls and I'm not going to cover everything it just take too long um and so I've picked out sort of four or five interesting places but um do have a just you know you can walk around the square it'll take you maybe you know five minutes to, to have a look at everything and uh Actually, one thing I did forget that there's a um, there's a, a graveyard for Christmas trees. Uh, obviously, the uh, the gardeners have a sense of humour, and they um, they popped a little um, uh, gravestone out in a corner uh, to a Christmas tree and her twelve baubles, uh, which they bury there. Which I saw a couple of Christmases ago. So yeah, yeah, you can. That is still there. You can spot it. So go and uh, I won't tell you where it is. You got to try and find that yourself. But uh, I think I did take it again. I took a photo on my Instagram page. But uh, first of all, let's meet the uh, the man who gave his name to the area, King Charles II. Uh, if you approach Soho Square from the north side, so you're, you're coming straight down from uh, Oxford Street uh, and you're walking towards the square, um, the first thing you'll see, uh, which isn't part of the tour, but it's a, um, it's a urinal, uh, which is one of these ones that sort of pops out the ground at night time. So if you do need to spend a penny, you can go there. I have used it myself. And um, it was a wonderful experience. Um, but uh, so that's sort of the, the first thing on the walk. But if you walk past that through the north gate, um, dead ahead of you uh, will be a, uh, a little path. And on that path is a statue of King Charles II, everyone's favourite king, the Merry Monarch. Um, and he's uh, stood there in a suit of armour with his big, long, sort of curly hair. Um, he's got his uh, it's his right hand up, um, and he would have originally been holding a, a, a baton, which is now missing. I think it was probably rusted away a long, long time ago. Um, but his hand is sort of posed, um, often um, open, and so you can, you know, people drop uh, bunches of flowers and twigs and sticks and flags and things down in there. Uh, and so I imagine the last time I saw him, he had a, a big bunch of flowers, uh, and I guess, fingers crossed, uh, he'll be holding something amusing uh, for you today. But um, the most interesting fact um, about King Charles II uh, was that he had a, uh, a wig made from his mistress's uh, pubic hair. Uh, not just one mistress, but, you know, the hundreds of them. Apparently he was um, a popular uh, little um, pastime in the 17th century uh, that you'd clip a little lock uh, from your favourite lady... Uh, or man, I guess, uh, and keep it as a little keepsake. And uh, he built up quite a collection of these uh, locks of hair, which he had um, plaited up and twisted into a, a little wig. Um, and he uh, used to wear it out and about, and it'd be a great laugh for him. But uh, he was a friend of a guy called the Earl of Moray uh, up in Scotland, in, in Fife. And he used to go and have um, big sort of boozy parties up there. And one year after such a wonderful party, he actually um, sent the wig as a gift for the Earl of Moray. Uh, and it was uh, uh, left in. It was uh, sort of a relic there at, at Castle Dreel, uh, and it passed down through the family of the uh, the Earls of Moray, uh, and they'd all uh, wear it and have a good time. Uh, to the extent that um, they set up a, a this sort of infamous sex club called the Beggars Benison, um, and this club deserves a podcast all of its own. Um, but again, it's it's not in London, so I can't really do it here. But um, <laughs> this club was absolutely extraordinary and they would um, it's mainly for men to, to look at women uh, but they'd be they'd all get roaring drunk and they'd all get their their bits out and the, apparently the, the club motto was may prick nor purse never fail you so uh, you get an idea of what the sort of clientele were like 
Um, but unfortunately, that uh, wig was um, a, a great relic of the club, and the uh, the club chief would pop it on at the beginning of the uh, uh, the festivities, and they would think that it would imbue them with the great rogering power of Charles II. Um, but unfortunately, it's now been lost. Uh, it was last seen in a lawyer's office, obviously, uh, in Leith in 1913. Um, so no one knows where the wig has gone, but they still uh, they still do have the box and the stand, which is a uh, in a collection at um, St Andrews University. So if uh, the next time you're there, uh, go and ask and see if you can see the box that held the wig made from uh, lots of lovely pubic hair. But uh, anyway, let's get back to business. So it's uh, uh, the statue uh, in front of you was placed here, um, literally um, almost on this exact spot, uh, four hundred years ago. Uh, when the square was first laid out. Um, the sculptor uh, was a Danish uh, sculptor called Caius Gabriel Sieber, uh, C-I-B-B-E-R. I'm sorry if I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, um, but he was this absolute superstar uh, of the sculpting world, and I'm sure if uh, any of you live in London, you probably would have seen his work, though you may not recognise it or know that it, um, no, it was by him, but uh, he was a... Um, a favourite to royalty. I think he married uh, into the sort of the minor gentry and um, became very famous. Uh, he was the sort of chief sculptor to William III, but he also worked with Christopher Wren uh, on St Paul's Cathedral and Hampton Court Palace. Uh, he made the, um, uh, the, the, the huge bas-relief sculptures on the base of the monument to the uh, Fire of London, so those are uh, by him as well. And we'll actually, not in this podcast, but at some point we will get down to the monument and look at the work of uh, Christopher Wren and the weirdness there, because that's another one of these you know, wonderfully weird uh, buildings. However, uh, the statue now, it's, it, it's rather sad, it's, uh, it's rather dilapidated. Um, he's, uh, at some point, the, uh, the front leg, which I think is his left leg, uh, that's been damaged. Um, his face has been sort of broken off, but it's been restored with a mask. Uh, on there now you can sort of see the join where they've they've popped it back on um i love this statue yeah when i walk uh, past on my way to work i give him a little tap on the leg um as a sort of good luck charm now so i think oh my god you know if anything goes wrong oh did i tap the leg i probably didn't i missed it oh no wonder i've no wonder i've dropped my phone uh there we are but um give him a tap as you go past he's he's, he's a he's a great fella. Um, he originally stood in the very centre of the square in a fountain, so you'll have to imagine that the uh, the building in front of you isn't there, and there's this huge fountain uh, with Charles uh, standing in the centre. Uh, he was raised on it was a much bigger plinth he was on, which had carvings of, um, oh gosh, it was sort of, you know, um, sea nymphs and mermaids and that sort of thing. It was a, obviously as a water feature, so there was sort of nautical themes going on there that he was stood on. Um, but then on the four corners of this statue, um, Mr. Sieber had sculpted um, four uh, representations of the great rivers of uh, the United Kingdom. Um, so there was the Thames, the Severn, the Humber and the Tyne. And uh, so on this uh, great fountain, he'd be gargling water um all very beautiful but unfortunately yeah so over the years uh, age and neglect um took its toll and about 100 years later the fountain was was filled in to make a, a flower bed and uh in 1875 the, the square itself underwent a fairly major overhaul uh, and the fountain was uh removed uh, the statue um sort of removed from its plinth and it was uh, due to be scrapped 
Uh, however, in steps Mr. Thomas Blackwell, um, who you may know his name uh, because he was one of the founding members of the condiment, um, the Cross and Blackwell sort of offices. Um, and you've probably got jars and jars of their stuff in your cupboards right now. Um, they were, interestingly, one of the first uh, companies ever to have sort of royal patronage uh, to Queen Victoria. Um, so they were um, often... Uh, uh, a lot of their labels have their, the, the royal crest on there. I'm sure you'll recognise it. Um, but yeah, so uh, Cross and Blackwell had their office just on the corner. If you look directly over your left shoulder, literally um, sort of 90 degrees, um, number 21, it's called Manor House now, but I think it is still numbered, number 21. It's on the corner of the road. That was used to be the old Cross and Blackwell factory. They had a little shop there as well. And um, Mr Blackwell saw they were taking the, fat, uh, the fountain down. He said... Um, Oh, I don't suppose you'd awfully mind if I could have that statue. And so he, he bought the statue and staved it. He, um, he wanted to get it restored. And so he gave it to his friend, who's a guy called uh, Frederick Goodall, uh, who was an artist. Uh, and at which point uh, Goodall um, took it back to his own home uh, called Grimm's Dyke, uh, near Harrow Well in northwest London. Uh, and there Goodall uh, put it up in his own garden. So he, he, uh, he was given it to restore and uh, he didn't bother and just kept it himself and uh, at which point this statue uh, comes into the hands of uh, W.S. Gilbert uh, of Gilbert and Sullivan fame 1890 he buys Grimm's Dyke the name of this house uh, named after an old earthwork feature uh, that was nearby and uh, um, he Gilbert was a Massive fan of swimming, uh, and so he had a, a big lake dug uh, in his garden, which he'd replace the water with every year to keep it crystal clear. And there was trout in there as well. Um, but he'd um, from March to September in this lake, uh, Mr. Gilbert would uh, would, would uh, swim in there um, under the, the watchful gaze of King Charles the Second. And uh, Gilbert, he seems a again doing some research on him uh, he seems a bit of an odd guy he was obviously famous for his comic operas um, but he was sort of very grumpy and very thin skinned couldn't really take um, any sort of uh, um, oh well yeah, he was thin skinned there we are <laughs> and, uh, but apparently he was very generous to his friends and strangers uh, and particularly very kind to women and children Um and sadly, this might be the reason that at the age of 74, he decided to give um, two young women uh, a swimming lesson in his lake. Um, apparently, it was a very cold day, uh, but it was sort of mid-August or September. Uh, and uh, a 17-year-old and a 21-year-old uh, sort of local girls came over for a swim. Um, they were splashing about in the lake. They didn't realise how deep it got towards the centre. Uh, and the younger one sort of called out, oh, gosh, help, I'm drowning. Uh, at which point Mr Gilbert, who hadn't been in the water, uh, dashed over and uh, leapt in uh, to try and rescue her. And he, uh, he managed to swim over to her. But um, all of a sudden, sort of seized up, he had a heart attack. The shock of the cold water killed him. And uh, the last thing he saw as he, he slid beneath the, uh, the the water of the lake was the... Uh, the grim grey statue of Charles II looking over him and uh, when um, uh, Gilbert's um, widow uh, passed away she had agreed that the statue could be returned back to where it would have originally stood uh, here in the middle of uh, Soho Square so uh, it came back in 1938.
So there was about 100 years, I think, when uh, yeah, yeah, Charles wasn't here. Uh, by the time he came back, they'd built the... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the the little building, the sort of gardener's hut in front of you, um, and so uh, that would have been the original site with the fountain. But uh, because they couldn't put him there, they they popped him uh, the spotties on now. And uh, well, we may as well walk over and have a look. This um, this central building, uh, described as sort of a Tudor Beethan shed, um, originally was built to cover up a electrical. Um, supply electrical service station which was in the centre um, and so they they pop that up uh, inside every now and again you can get a glimpse in uh, and you can see the gardeners uh, who now use it as a little um, office and um, uh, shed uh, and it's always worth you know popping your head around the door if you can just because it's exciting to see these things that you don't really <laughs> often uh, get to see and uh, most excitingly in a pair of doors which I've only ever seen open once which are on the the south side of the uh, of the sedge so if you walk around uh, the edge you'll see these two uh, fairly large locked doors and they are uh, uh, much more exciting and uh, obviously one of the most famous parts of London and British history of the last hundred years is obviously the um, the Second World War and the, the devastation caused uh, in the Blitz is somewhere in the region of about, uh, I think, 30,000 people killed, uh, 75,000 uh, seriously injured, uh, and that's just in London uh, alone. And uh, it was the early stage of the Second World War they realised we're going to have to need um, uh, bunkers. We need places to keep people safe. Uh, through those doors, there is a emergency exit for a deep level uh, bunker, which is built uh, directly down uh, under your feet, uh, and it is still there today. It is. Um, uh, this would this would have been the uh, emergency exit. I think that the main entrance is uh, if you're looking at these these doors over on your left uh, hand side I think there's um, a little sort of stone hut which I think covers uh, the main entrance uh, to get down there now but it would have uh, originally held up to 200 people um, but the, um, the it, uh, they later filled it with uh, racks of bunk beds so I think the sort of capacity dropped off slightly when they put the bunk beds in but designed to hold 200 people there was only one toilet uh, and the only report uh, I could find of um, anyone who'd ever been inside uh, you know under a German attack was uh, a little boy who said it was very hot and very smelly and that was the only thing you remembered about using the uh, the Soho shelter but it was used throughout the uh, duration of the war uh, also interesting, the iron railings from around the side of the park, um, those were all taken up uh, and turned into um, planes and bullets and tanks and melted down to become helmets and, and you name it. And uh, uh, So the, the railings are all replacements, but it's often quite fun. You can spot them around a lot of parks in London uh, and even outside private houses as well. You can see where there's a... Um, might be outside the front of a you know a Porsche old Georgian row of buildings and the the railings have been hacked off just at the uh, street level and that's where they were um, given up for the uh, the war effort um, but uh, actually as recently as uh, 
February the 4th, uh, this year, 2020, my word, yeah, the uh, the streets around Soho were closed uh, on two occasions in the space of 24 hours because of unexploded um, half-ton Second World War bombs were discovered during building work. Uh, and so the, the the threat of the Nazi bombs is, is still there. Um, the underground bunker itself um, is now um, gutted, but you can see some... Uh, very good photographs. There's a website uh, which is called uh, foreverchanges.com, forever-changes.com. Uh, and if you uh, click on there, um, it's a sort of urban explorer. And I think back in 2012, he was actually inside uh, the bunker. And you can see various little photographs of the original sign uh, on there and um, bits of machinery and things that have been left behind. And uh, where are we? Here we are. Uh, 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 uh. There we are. Yes, so yeah. So if everything you can see it there. And um, actually, bizarrely, this bunker was uh, it was put up for sale um, in about twenty fifteen, I think. So if you search again, if you do a little um, search for um, Soho Square bunker, you'll find lots of articles uh, all talking about the fact that it's been sold and it might become a restaurant. But obviously, nothing has has happened yet, and I shouldn't think anything anything will come of it. It's been so long. But um, yeah, one hundred seventy five thousand pounds could have bought you a uh, a bunker underneath Soho Square. But uh, right, enough of that. If you are um, standing looking at the uh, the, the little um, gardener's shed in front of you, if you turn to your right. Uh, and you walk to the exit of the park there, it'll come to our next stop, um, which you'll be able to see in front of you there. It's the um, the old Cross and Blackwell uh, factory and offices, 21 Soho Square, Manor House, um, built 1678 as a, uh, it's supposed to be a family home. Uh, in the 1770s, it became the uh, uh, Spanish Embassy. And um, sorry about this, I, my laptop has just turned off, so bear with me just a moment. There we are. Uh, and so it uh, became the uh, the Spanish Embassy. And then in 1776, a wonderful man by the name of Thomas Hopper bought the place uh, when it was known as the White House. And for the next 23 years, it became one of the most notorious brothels in London. Uh, it was described, everywhere I read about it, it's described as a sort of magic uh, brothel. It was part sideshow, it was part brothel, it was part hotel and club. Um, and there's this wonderful description I found by uh, Henry Mayhew, who uh, he's a famous uh, author. He's the guy who wrote uh, London Labour and the London Poor. He founded Punch magazine as well, so he was uh, a real sort of mover and shaker. He knew a lot of these places, and he uh, visited uh, and wrote about it, and he says, uh, the White House was a notorious place of ill fame. Some of the apartments, it said, were furnished in the style of costly luxury, where others were fitted up with springs, traps, and other contrivances, so as to present no appearance other than that of an ordinary room until the machinery was set in motion. In one room into which some wretched girl might be introduced, on her drawing a curtain as she would be desired, a skeleton, grinning horribly, was precipitated forward and caught the terrified creature in his arms. Uh, in another chamber the lights grew dimmer and dimmer, and they seemed to gradually go out. In a short time some candles apparently self-ignited, revealing to the horror-stricken woman a black coffin on the lid might be seen in brass letters, Anne, or whatever name it might be ascertained that the poor wretch was known by. 
in another room, a sofa uh, was made to descend into some place of utter darkness, or it was alleged into a room which was the store of soot or ashes. Uh, and so it was a, uh, a real sort of odd party sex dungeon <laughs> place for about 20 years, um, which I think it just sounds absolutely berserk. And, uh, uh, and then, it, yeah, it became a, a factory to make chutney. <laughs> but uh, so that was uh, rather good. Um, directly over the road on your right hand side is uh, a Catholic church, St. Patrick's Catholic Church. Uh, again, who's uh, got catacombs there which stretch out uh, nearly as far as the, the Second World War bunker. So that's got its own sort of uh, secret catacombs there. Little did they suspect, I think, that um, over the road at the White House there was um, odd goings on in underground basements at the same time. Uh, but the building itself, it was consecrated in 1792, uh, which means it was among the first um, sort of new Catholic buildings um, built in the the UK after the uh, Reformation and Charles, uh, no, Charles um, Henry VIII um, sort of um, disbanding the Catholic Church. So it's one of the the first ones in London. And um, again, if you can get inside, uh, there's a, this sort of amazing interiors and sculpture and stained glass and well worth a look. And uh, if we carry on walking past the church, so we're going south, um, the southern corner of the square, you'll see. Um, the, it's called the House of Charity, and it's written up in tiles. I think it's on the corner of Greek Street. Um, the House of Charity, um, and uh, it was called. Actually, I think it's now called the House of Saint Barnabas, uh, and it's a charity for supporting the homeless. And um, what you can do, which is absolutely fantastic, which I always try and do when I walk past again, just because it's a sort of no novelty more than anything else. Um, but there's a little collection box in the uh, in the in the railings, and uh, that box is connected through the pipe. You can see um, going down into the basement. In that, uh, there's um, a hollow tube. So you put your coins in, and they roll down. And there's a little collection box inside, and you can hear the coin uh, going down and, and clinking in. Uh, which I love, so uh, that's quite a good little novelty. So if you've got some coins in your pocket, pop them in, and uh, you'll be looking after the homeless. And uh, this building is uh, also quite interesting to us, uh, because it was here that our dear old friend, Charles Maurice Davies, uh, who was uh, the subject of my uh, one of my earliest podcasts, he was the guy who wrote the book... Um, uh, about uh, occult London, uh, where he went on uh, to seances and, um, you know, summoning devils and, you know, floating around in his living room and all that sort of stuff in his desperate attempt to try and contact uh, the ghost of his dead son. Um, and so uh, he uh, used to work here uh, in this building and he um, was a, an Anglican priest, but he was very high church. He was very, he, I think he even became a Catholic priest for a few years before going back to the Church of England. Um, and it was here that he set up a thing called the Society of the Ho uh, the Society of the Holy Cross uh, in 1855, um, which sounds absolutely thrilling, something that uh, sort of Indiana Jones would stumble across. But uh, unfortunately, it was just a sort of a, as an Anglo-Catholic society, uh, sort of um, forging friendship between the. Um, Protestants and Catholics, uh, and also um, taking uh, priests on retreat and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but uh, uh, so it was it was here where they came up um, uh, with that uh, that society. So I think it's good fun that our uh, our very odd friend Charles um, knew Soho Square very well.
and uh, so we'll um, we'll see him later. We'll continue round. We're going to go clockwise, um, carry on round the the square, and uh, as you get to about nine o'clock, uh, you'll see um, the corner of Carlisle Street and Soho Square. Um, the shop here. This is actually number one, Soho Square. They started the numbering here. Um, it's a Sunrider shop now, I think. But um, this one here, it's fairly unremarkable, really. It's been almost completely redeveloped from how it originally looked. Uh, but here, in 1898, we would have been outside the uh, the Voynich uh, bookshop. Uh, and here, we could have uh, gone in and had a chat with the proprietor, and we could have taken a look that uh, quite possibly was uh, a relic from not just another time uh, or another place but uh, another dimension it's a uh, the bookshop was owned by a chap called Wilfred Voynich uh, who was um, a Polish born uh, businessman uh, a book collector uh, a book collector do you beg your pardon um, trained as a pharmacist but he was also a sort of part-time revolutionary in in Tsarist Russia. Uh, he was a, a student in Moscow and he qualified as a pharmacist uh, but then got himself in a lot of the sort of student groups there and uh, for his troubles was sent off to Siberia. Uh, he made the most of it, he learned uh, 18 languages as you do and then uh, using those he uh, managed to uh, um, slip through the net, he escaped uh, on a train uh, and then after about three years there in Siberia and he, uh, he managed to make his way to London where he um, set himself up as a uh, as a bookseller. 1897, he had his, his bookshop here. He collected this huge collection. Uh, it was vast and, and varied, um, so much so that he was um, uh, he was investigated by the FBI during the First World War. Um, he had a, an office as well in, in America, and during the First World War, I think he m spent more time over in America building up his collection. But he had all these weird, wonderful sort of occult texts and spell books and magical charms and books of um, sort of... Un breakable codes and things which uh, the American government thought might be able to help out the war effort. But uh, um, more on that is almost impossible to find. But uh, yeah, there's, again, probably another story there. But um, he died in the, the 1930s uh, in New York, um, a very well-loved sort of antiquarian um, book dealer. But um, why uh, is he of any interest to us? Well, um, Mr. Voynich... Uh, lent his expertise and also his name uh, to the book, uh, which is all known by his name now, uh, which you may have heard of. It's the, the Voynich Manuscript, which is this uh, incredibly weird book. Uh, it's been carbon dated um, to um, near on 1400 AD, um, and it's made of uh, vellum, which is a... Um, a goat skin, prepared goat skin, um, and it's hundreds and hundreds of pages. I think uh, it looks to be that there would have been about 270, of which only 240 now remain. Uh, but it says uh, apparently he was he bought it. Uh, Mr. Voynich bought this odd manuscript in Italy uh, just before the First World War um, at the the Via Mondragon. Uh, and a sort of ancient papal holiday home, um, and a, a Jesuit uh, college, and the, actually the, the, the former summertime residence of Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, who uh, we all know and love because he uh, came up with the Gregorian calendar. Um, anyway, they had this uh, library there, and um, it was uh, they were running a little low on funds, and so a number of uh, 
manuscripts they had there were being sold to the, the Vatican Library. And Mr. Voynich swooped in and, and said, Look, you know, two or three of these you wouldn't mind if I have. And he, he bought them. Um, again, yeah, I think about 1910, I think he, he bought the book. Um, but the manuscript itself, um, it's, uh, I guess, it's 24 by 16 centimetres. So what's that? that's about, I guess, um, you know, sheet of A4 folded in half. What's that? Is that A5? Um, a little notebook size. Um, but it's written completely in a uh, mysterious code in a completely alien language, which no one's been able to decipher, um, with further annotations, which are, some are in Latin, some are in um, sort of an ancient German um, language as well. Um, the text appears to run uh, left to right. There's no obvious punctuation. The characters are written in ink. Uh, they're formed of no more than three uh, pen or brush strokes. They're quite simple uh, characters. There's only about 25 of them uh, that make up the whole body of the text. And then there's seven or eight uh, of these um, characters which appear nowhere else and they only crop up once or twice as well uh, but there's certainly 25 characters which they use there's no corrections uh, there's no strikeouts there's no amendments it was written as fluidly as if it was your own handwriting and not uh, transcribed into a code with lots of sort of breaks between the uh, between the letters as you figured out what it was so it was written by someone who innately knew a this code the language how to make the letters without stumbling or uh, or getting it wrong once this was uh, the language that the author spoke every page uh, is covered in text but there's also uh, numerous uh, illustrations uh, the text flows around the images um, so they're not sort of afterthoughts been put on later they um, they carbon dated the ink and it's um, uh, contemporary to the um, the paperwork as well um, but bizarrely these pictures um, they seem to show completely sort of alien plants, uh, weird animals, weird machines and, and processes which, you know, aren't from the 15th century. You know, this isn't um, Eric von Daniken and, um, uh, you know, space aliens coming down and doing stuff. This is, this is you know, strange plants. You know, there's, there's dragons, there's weird sort of bulbous plants with hairy tubers and weird vivid uh colored blooms the um <coughs> uh there's a, a section in there which is clearly talking about these plants they're sort of marked uh and obviously labeled and there's you know blow up of um petals and roots and and seeds and things but no one has been ever been able to successfully identify what these uh plants are they don't seem to link to any Oh, there's a cat meowing. Oh, dear. Um, they don't seem to link to any uh, known um, plant that's um, around today. Uh, there's also signs of the zodiac depicted in sort of symbolic naked uh, female figures who are tied uh, or tethered to different planetary bodies and stars. Um, there's a section uh, which sort of the writing, obviously no one knows what they're saying, but there's pages showing this intricate sort of flowing water pipe system 
which flows all around the text from page after page after page and uh, linking these sort of water tanks or, or pools containing humanoid figures. Um, there's a fold-out map which is six pages big uh, with a de uh, which is sort of detailed showing islands linked by vast causeways and there's castles and volcanoes and mountains and, and woods and it's completely you know it, it, it's not of anywhere uh, that we've been able to uh, to locate on earth uh, there's no identifiable uh, there's no identifiable religious symbols anywhere but there are star maps and um uh, strange um uh, animals things things like, like fire breathing dragons and you know weird sort of lizard monsters um at the best guess uh, that uh, most sort of scholars seem to think it's either a sort of alchemist's cookbook or a, a medical guide. But the odd thing is no one can identify what planet it's talking about. It's not stuff that's existed on Earth. Um, the code has been looked at time and time again, <clears throat> and uh, they've never been able to work out uh, what the code is, what the language is. Um, there's a letter uh, which came with the book when Voynich uh, purchased it, and it's a uh, the letter dates from 1666 because of course it would 666, uh, and the the letter there it's, um, it, it bequeaths it to a, a Jesuit scholar, Athanasius Kircher, Athanasius Kircher, yeah, um, and it says uh, part of this letter says books such as these obey no one but their master. And uh, so in 1666, this went to this Jesuit library, uh, the, the Via Mondragon, uh, until, uh, short of money, 1912 they sold it to Mr. Voynich. Um, Voynich did some more research into it, um, and it looks as though, according to the, the letter inside, that it was originally uh, purchased from Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, King of Bohemia. Uh, it had been purchased for 600... Um, ducats uh, which equates to something like two kilograms of uh, solid gold um, and this is uh, the same uh, king of bohemia who employed the the british magician uh, alchemist sorcerer occultist john d uh, to find the philosopher's stone and create gold from base metal so um, this is the same john d who could speak enochian the language of the angels, the language uh, of God, of heaven. Uh, you know, this isn't Jesus speaking Aramaic. This is the language which God used when he created the earth and, and spoke the heavens into being. And uh, this book, uh, as far as Voynich was concerned, could very well be uh, a guidebook to heaven written by the, the, the mayor of heaven himself, um, written by God. Uh, so that is, you know, it's a, it's a creepy, weird thing. Um, and it's, you know, quite exciting to think, you know, crikey. Uh, yeah, is this the, um, the rough guide to heaven written by the guy who created it? But uh, yeah, we are. I'm not saying either way. But there, what a book to, uh, to, uh, uh, to own. And uh, it is now, it's been... Oh gosh! If you look, you can actually you can search it online. You can see various images. You can actually buy um, sort of modern um, versions of this book, and there's there's you often have competitions for people to try and um, break the code and, and and work it out. And no one's ever really got there yet. But um, 
yeah, if you can ever uh, take the time to have a look, uh, it's well worth it. It, it. It's this wonderful, mysterious book, and I, I rather like the fact it ended up in this wonderful, mysterious square. And uh, good old uh, Mr. Voynich. Uh, there we are, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we've had our tour um, of my favourite little spots round Soho Square. Um, I'd also recommend, if you've got the time, uh, going have a look at the the, um, the plaques on the benches. Uh, there's even ping pong tables. You can have a game there. Um, but it's often very busy, uh, particularly this time of year, summertime. Um, all the people in the offices come out and have their lunch there. And, um, when I walk home, about seven o'clock, um, the park is often still um, busy with people out there having picnics and, and sandwiches and uh, plenty of booze. And uh, I dare say there's a few um, drug users there as well, but it is Soho, so we'll, we'll let them enjoy themselves. Um, but it's a fantastic park. Um, again, as I say, yeah, have a look at the, the little plaques and the, the offices. I think there's 20th Century Fox and Universal and Sony Music, I think. Um, Paul McCartney's music um, studio is uh, is on the square somewhere. Um, so there's yeah there's all sorts of uh, uh, interesting uh, windows you can look in. Uh, people busy you know working away on their next uh, um, albums or, or films or soundtracks, whatever it might be. So um, if you can do uh, go and pay a visit, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I hope. Uh, you're all well. I hope you're all looking after each other uh, and you're staying safe. And um, I will be back uh, at my little desk um, thinking up some more things to tell you all about. I've no idea what I'll look at next. Maybe um, maybe the Monument to the Fire of London. Um, so I'll get my books out for that. Uh, and I will wish you all a very happy and a very healthy um uh, evening, afternoon or morning. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, follow me on Instagram, send me an email or anything you like and uh, I'll speak to you very, very soon.